Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, John Metter, with an inspiring discussion on persevering in hard seasons and a reminder that if you're still alive, God's not done with you. No matter how disillusioned a person has been in their faith in Jesus Christ, he does not shut us down. He didn't shut Thomas down for doubting. He gave him evidence to believe. And in the same way, he gave Peter evidence to believe, even when he'd given up. Now, that just says something about God right there. John Metter, next. In his new book, God's Not Done With You, Texas Pastor John Metter uses nine amazing comeback stories from the Bible to show how God provides everything needed to get through challenging setbacks. Rather than showing people overcoming hardship through simple grit, the stories of Esther, Peter, and others tell of extraordinary changes of heart and how God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Pastor Metter, tell us the story behind the book. The seeds of this book came in back in 2019, something like that, just three or four years ago. And I was preaching a series on great comebacks in the scripture. And somewhere in the making of that message series, I realized that just about everybody that I that I um, enjoy reading about in the Old Testament had a comeback story. Most mm. of them almost impossible, if not impossible. And God brought each of them through those impossible stories, and it made them what they were in the end. And uh, no matter what the uh, individual went through, it was something that built their character, revealed their character, and God used it in a huge way. And it became a very encouraging series for our people. So during pandemic, I said, we're coming back from the pandemic. Maybe I need to talk about great comebacks in our lives. And in your own life, there's obviously a very personal aspect of this story. If you would tell us about your own life, your own challenges, your own comeback story. I'm happy to do that. You know, when I was a young boy, uh, we grew up in rural Oklahoma and uh, far from hospitals and, and so forth. And, and uh, I had a very high fever uh, at the age of about five, five and a half. And uh, my parents got on the phone with a physician in another city, and he advised me, uh, advised them that I was probably uh, going to have some damage if we didn't come out of this fever. And my first memory is being submerged in a bathtub full of ice. That's uh, that early memory I have in my mind. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a confusing memory. Why would my mom and dad be putting me in this bathtub full of ice? Yeah. But ultimately, it broke the fever. And a few months later, we learned that that high fever had caused some inner ear nerve damage in my ears, and I'd lost about 95% of my hearing in both ears uh, at about the age of five and a half or six. So from that point on, my, my world kind of went silent, even though I wasn't really able to understand what was going on, and neither were my parents. Uh, it was a first grade teacher that finally said, uh, he, he can't hear us, and that's what's going on. And so from that point on, uh, we really were in a comeback story. How, how do we overcome this? This boy can speak because he'd already learned to speak, but he can't hear. Uh, so I, I'm just a, I'm a big fan of my parents. My parents were amazing, and uh, they were the kind of people that uh, drilled into me uh, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and they just wouldn't let me uh, give up. 
And we were far from a school for the deaf. We we had no one in our community that knew how to sign. So mm-hmm. even if I had learned to sign, there wouldn't be anybody to talk to. It was a very small community. So ultimately, they just made the decision, let's just trust the grace of God and let's teach him to read lips. And uh, and that's basically how I function now for uh, more than 60 years. That That is amazing. And if I may ask, and we've got a lot to talk about, I realize, but how did you come to faith in Christ? Was it as a very young child? It really was. It was not too long after I'd lost my hearing. In fact, it's kind of notable because um, I remember by then, I, it was pretty silent. And uh, I remember being awakened in the night, hearing my name and thinking it was my dad and being very afraid about that. And the next morning, I I said, somebody call my name in the night. And my father and mother took me to the story of, of Eli and, and Samuel and um, and said, you know, I don't know what God could be saying, but it had to be his voice because it wasn't ours. And you heard it. So, um, you know, was that, that was the beginning of my salvation where they began to talk to me about what it meant to put faith in Christ. And, and they led me to faith in Christ. And uh, shortly thereafter, about the age of six. So that's how I came to Christ. Mm, well, thank you. And the title of your book, God's Not Done With You, obviously circumstances can be, uh, people experience circumstances so bad, so bleak, could be illness, uh, as in your case, or tragedy, or our own mistakes, which is so often the case. It'd be so easy to think there's no way God can use me now. Absolutely. And whether it's a circumstance not of your making or one of your making, God is, uh, he does not struggle with overcoming the impossible. And, and I really want that to be an encouragement to people because everybody makes mistakes and then others are in suffering or hardships, uh, because of, uh, reasons that we don't even know about. Um, but the the bottom line is God has a purpose for every portion of that and everything in your life, no matter how easy or hard it is. Well, you have a wonderful way of uh, illustrating that truth uh, at the beginning of each chapter, and of course, the biblical character in each chapter, but at the beginning of each chapter, a modern-day example along with the biblical character. Tell us, where did you find these modern-day examples? You know, the interesting thing about uh, these chapters is that when I began to teach through these characters, I would have people come to me at the end of a message or at the end of a series and say, you know, my life mirrors that so closely. Hmm. And I would say, tell me about it. And they would tell me about their story, and and, and there are a variety of them. Um, and in each of those stories, I thought, wow, God is doing this over and over and over in people's lives. There's a consistent pattern. In the same way that God worked in Abigail's life, he worked in this lady's life. And the same way he worked in Hezekiah's life, he worked in these five women who were all dealing with cancer at the same time. Just over and over, I see that pattern. Of course, we know um, that God works uniquely, but he also works in a predictable way sometimes. And uh, that's what brings us encouragement when we see the Old Testament examples. So people came to me and said, I've got this story. Well, the book is God's Not Done With You, Encouragement from the Bible's Greatest Comeback Stories. You start with Moses, uh, Pastor Metter. Why did you start with him, and what is uh, what is his story? Well, the story of Moses is um, a story of anger more than it is anything else, coming back from anger, being on the backside of the desert. Now, we don't often see that first when we read about Moses. We, we think about you know, the Exodus and how God used him in a huge way uh, against Pharaoh and Egypt to set God's people free. But that was a third 40-year period of his life. If you broke his life into three 40-year periods, that's only the third. Hmm. So how did he get there? 
The first 40 years had a lot to do with oppression. Uh, he was raised a child of privilege, of course, but his people were oppressed. And it was through his anger at what he perceived to be God's injustice and God's slowness to correct that, that he actually committed a murder and had to run for the next 40 years of his life. So anger was a big piece of his life. And uh, he spent a lot of years regretting that until God spoke with him out of that burning bush uh, on the backside of the desert and called him back to the place where he had done what he'd done. And uh, so he had to face his past. He had to face Pharaoh. And uh, he had to, this time, trust the power of God. And that's the story of the Exodus right there. The backstory is almost more entertaining <laughs> than the, the fantastic story of the Exodus. <laughs> and, and anger is something that obviously many people deal with. Today, uh, mental health issues that people deal with, uh, often closely associated with anger, is such a big, big deal. And uh, and sometimes we, the consequences of our anger almost cut us off from what we think is a comeback. But if God can help Moses through what he did, uh, I assure your listeners and the readers of this book, God can help you too. And I had my own struggle with anger. And you know, anger sometimes is a surface level, and sometimes it's pretty deep. Mm -hmm. In my case, I really struggled with the fact that God had allowed me to lose all my hearing or 95% of it, and um, I just thought that was unjust in some way. So I was angry at God, meaning I was also angry at people whenever they set me off, mm -hmm. so to speak, or whenever I lost my patience. And so I had to deal with all that, and, uh, and now I'm one of the least angry people that I know. And I think God just gave me great victory in that area. He can give people victory in that area. And sometimes that the victory, though, is a long time coming, right? That's right. <laughs> it certainly is. It was in Moses' life. And even at the end of Moses' life, you see some glimpses of that. But, but yes, God had to overcome that for him to be usable to get the people out of uh, bondage. And as we talk about these various people, and we'll see how many we can get to in our conversation, there's Moses and Abigail, Esther and Joseph, Jonah, Elijah, Hezekiah, and Peter. And in one sense, uh, these are stories of God's, this is one thing you point out, stories of God's involvement in the lives of his people, even when they're not aware, or maybe especially when they're not aware of his involvement. Yeah, I think the story of Joseph really illustrates that. Mm -hmm. who, who can who can connect the dots and all these highs and lows of Joseph's life? I mean, it, it sounds like a roller coaster, but in every situation, it was serious. It was either seriously deep and awful or seriously great, um, and it didn't seem to be too much in between there. So how do you connect the dots on what God's doing there? And you really don't until the end of Joseph's life. When he looks back, and what I call the 50-20 principle here, which is found in Genesis 50-20, and he looks at his brothers and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present deliverance of Israel. And um, so I encourage people to have patience until they get to the 50-20 moment in their life, <laughs> and they can look back and see with hindsight and also spiritual perspective that God does connect all the dots, and he does in the end show us in some way what he was doing. And I'm grateful for that. And it's that encouragement of God's uh, sovereignty over our lives that, it, as Romans says, all things work together for good to those who love God. I love that verse. Romans 8, 28 is one of my favorite. And, and I think it should be a healthy part of our theology uh, that God always is working uh, for good, even when we don't see it. An old Bible teacher friend of mine named Ron Dunn used to say, good and evil 
run on parallel tracks mm. and they arrive at about the same time. And uh, so I encourage people when they're, when they're seeing bad things happen in their lives to look around because something else is happening as well. They may not see it at the moment, but they will at some point because they arrive at about the same time. Well, I'm wondering if you would tell us the story of Abigail and, and what can we learn about her life in terms of implications for our own uh, relationships? Well, yes, and Abigail is one of my favorite, by the way. Um, Abigail, Esther, and several other women in the Bible. I, I just feel like we haven't uh, spent the time to dig into their lives. These are some amazing women in the Scriptures. But Abigail's in particular uh, was a story of a woman between two angry men, Nabal, her husband, and David, who had been offended by Nabal. And the problem was that David was, at that moment, with all of his warriors about to descend on Abigail's household, uh, going after Nabal, and then Abigail had to stand in the gap um, in a moment and get wisdom in that second, in that conversation. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of God's grace under fire. Um, anything she said could have gone one way or another, but God allowed her to do the right thing, show the right kind of respect, uh, meet the immediate need in David's life. And, of course, this story is not just a story of rescue, but it's a story of redemption. God basically redeems her life and uses it in the future in a very different way. She becomes the queen down the road. Um, so it's mm. really a love story. It's a story about war. I mean, it ought to be a movie. Men and women would both love to see this movie. <laughs> you mentioned that Esther is also one of your favorites, and uh, I, I've heard it said, well, it's pretty clear, that Esther is the one book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned, although his, if you will, his fingerprints are all over it. Isn't that amazing that you can have a whole book in the Bible, and it makes it into the Bible through the canon process, and God's name is not once mentioned, but God is all over that book uh, because none of these things could have happened without God's sovereign hand. You mentioned God's sovereign hand a moment ago. Mm -hmm. None of the things that happened to Esther could possibly have happened with the timing they did. And we, we, on, we on earth look around and say, what a coincidence. But <laughs> those of us that know the sovereign hand of God say, that's not a coincidence. That's the movement of God. And uh, yeah, his name's not mentioned there, but uh, at the end, that's who everybody's worshiping. What is God doing in especially difficult or trying times in our lives, in the lives of believers? Uh, is it possible to generalize things that he is most certainly doing in our lives, even when we're maybe at the bottom of this? I mean, he's done with us. Everything's over. And when people ask me questions like this or questions like, uh, how can a good God allow the kind of suffering I see around me? Um, then I take it very serious, and, and people deserve a serious answer. And I, I answer that on several levels. One of, one of the things I say is, well, we live, we live in a sin-filled world, and suffering's going to happen somewhere around us. In a general sense, um, God has allowed man to have the result of his free choices, and, uh, and we want that free will. We demand it, and we, we, we use it. So in a sense, we're in that kind of a world, and until God gives us a new heaven and a new earth, it's going to be like that. There will be some suffering on earth. So in that sense, it's there. But in another sense, God doesn't let that go without redemption. Uh, as we said uh, in the life of Abigail or Esther or any of these people that we've written about, that God causes all things to work together for good. And uh, they may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So you have a God that allows all that free will to take place, and at the same time, 
through his incredible power, causes it to work together for good. James tells us that the uh, the testing of our faith uh, produces patience and endurance and perfects us and completes us. So there's two or three things going on. Evil's in the world, God's redeeming it, but also God is growing us. And in those three choices alone, we have some hope that God is going to bring something out of our lives that we may not know what it is yet, but we know he's not absent and he's not silent, and uh, his hand has not been taken off of us. Certainly, in difficult times, uh, often there's a tremendous amount of pressure, and obviously, is sort of a can be sort of a fog that that we are in. And uh, you you raise the issue of not self destructing during such hard and sometimes very ambiguous times. What are some keys to not self destructing when things are in that kind of a situation? That's one of my favorite lines because. There is an art to not self-destructing, and, and I would say most of the time we do self-destruct, and I'm speaking about myself. So part of what's required is learning restraint. Restraint at saying, okay, I don't, I don't make the final call. I don't determine what the outcome is going to be. God does. And until I hear from God or see what God's doing, the answer is not going to be there. So I have to have some self-restraint. And then I have to have some surrender, because uh, if you remember the story of Elijah, he prays, and he's at, he's at, in despair. He's at the point of wanting to die, but, but he says, it's enough, Lord, you take my life, which is a far cry different from, Lord, I'm going to take my life. And uh, when I talk to people that are at the end of the rope, so to speak, and they really despair of life, I say, listen, listen to how Elijah prayed. Uh, you say to the Lord, Lord, when, when it's my time to go, you take me. But I'm going to wait till you take me. <laughs> and, uh, and we might smile when we say that, but it's a very serious thing mm-hmm. for people that are in despair and in darkness. But the art of self-destructing means we don't take matters into our own hands. It means we do have patience and trust in the goodness of a God who has placed us here. And we do uh, have that anticipation that I can't wait to see how God is going to work this out. So when I have those three things going for me, I tend not to self-destruct so quickly. Well, the book is God's Not Done With You, Encouragement from the Bible's Greatest Comeback Stories. My guest is the author, Pastor John Metter. He pastors Cross City Church in Euless, Texas. And, uh, of course, uh, as we go through life, as we go through challenging circumstances, as these uh, people that you lay out, both in terms of biblical characters and people in your church, in your book, Pastor Metter, they, of course, people typically ask, well, I, I wish God would speak to me, I wish he would talk to me, and yet it may seem basic to some, but he but he has. He does talk to us, and he has. He does. Uh, I, li- I like Francis Schaeffer's book of many years ago, God is there, or he is there, and he is not silent. And uh, that book, uh, title alone, has stuck with me. There's lots of great principles in the book. But God is there, and he's not silent. And in every one of these stories, God has spoken or revealed to this character I'm writing about what they are to do next or what they're not to do, one of the two. And uh, and that's hope right there, knowing that the living God who created heaven and earth knows where you are, what's going on, and is willing to give you direction if you'll hear it. Uh, so absolutely, God speaks today. And the importance of hearing it, he, there are so many promises in there for different situations, different circumstances. I mean, but we have to know them. 
That's right. We have to know them. We have to own them and say, Lord, I think this promise right here is what you've given me, and I'm going to hold out for it. I'm going to hold on until uh, you bring me home or until you fulfill the promise. No, no. obviously, when we get into the ministry context or even just life in general, married life, so on, immorality, sexual immorality is one of those issues where so often the temptation is the opposite of what your book's title is, God's not done with you. Well, he's done with me now. I've done this. It's, uh, And yet, if you would talk about the story of David, and there were circumstances, uh, there yeah. were consequences, but God was still in control of what happened. Yes, and God God restored David to the throne of the, of the earthly kingdom he'd appointed him to, which there's a lot of grace in that. I mean, it's amazing that he did that. It's amazing that the people allowed that to happen. Very unusual story. But David's uh, repentance is legendary, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, Psalms 51 is such an amazing uh, chapter of the book of Psalms that talks about just his prayer and his his uh, humility and how he's brought low. And, and I think the key for people that have uh, stepped into immorality or some other sin that they feel like is very disqualifying or destructive, which it is, um, for them to realize that what God is about is about bringing you to the place where you need him and want him and where you're not willing to keep matters in your own hands. As long as matters were in David's hands during this time of adultery, and the resulting consequences of what he did, the collateral damage he created, as long as those circumstances were in his hand, his hole got deeper, the pit was worse. But when he released those and said, I'm out, I'm out of my element, I'm over my head in the sin, I've sinned against you, God, and against others as well, but mainly against you, that's when God began to restore David. So my counsel to people that can identify with David's sin and where he is is, Get to the place where you're saying, I'm not going to be in control of my future anymore. It's going to be in God's hands. And as you mentioned, Pastor Matter, there it may be a long period of repentance and loss of painful circumstances, painful consequences, I should say, which follow and precede God's redemption. Absolutely. And those consequences in David's life involved the loss of the child that was conceived during that sin and then uh, he was perpetually known as a man of war, and, and really all kinds of chaos came to his household. He remained as king, but he also did not have an easy uh, ending to his reign. Um, but Solomon, who followed him, of course, uh, was set up to build the, uh, the tabernacle, or the temple rather, and, uh, and God used him in a great way. So David had to forfeit a lot of things. Well, going back to a person you mentioned uh, right at the beginning of the conversation who you write about toward the end of the book, and that is Hezekiah. And, and the, the parallel of his life you used uh, at the beginning, women in your church. I think there were five women who uh, had, had survived cancer uh, for various periods of time. And tell us what the connection, of course, many people uh, in our world today have cancer, uh, and it affects many lives. But uh, yeah, I should leave the story to you. These ladies are so inspirational. Um, there are th these five women, um, I learned about their story at some point before I wrote this book, but, um, but after I wrote the book, I got, a, got to sit down with them and talk to them uh, in the context of writing it even. And uh, they call themselves the Bosom Buddies. And uh, they all faced breast cancer. They all became an encouragement to each other. And um, so as a result of that, I learned many lessons about what it means to face death the way Hezekiah was facing death. 
And they had some great, great insights uh, of how you respond when you feel that a death sentence has been pronounced over you. Um, four of these five ladies are now cancer-free, and mm. um, and they have great testimonies about this. One of them is now in heaven with the Lord, uh, one that I did not get to talk to. And But the bottom line on it is these, these ladies did what Hezekiah didn't do. When Hezekiah was given a reprieve, when he was given his help, he became prideful. But these women tell us how to live on the other side, uh, joyfully, um, with a with a mature perspective, not wasting time on frivolous things, and really making life count, worshiping like you've never worshipped before. I mean, I could go on and on. These these ladies gave me all kinds of great examples of how to live life fully. Mm. Well, our time is nearly up, uh, Pastor Metter, but I, I'd like to ask you, uh, we, we haven't touched on everybody, uh, we've touched on most of them, but I'd like to ask you about Peter and how Peter's story offers, it. I mean, we look at it, we, many people say, oh, thank goodness that God put Peter in the Bible, but talk about the encouragement that he can be for really all of us who struggle. Right. I, I don't know anybody that cannot identify with the Apostle Peter and you know, I think Peter was totally disillusioned. He had his he had his plans for Jesus, and those plans didn't look like they were doing very well after Jesus died on the cross, or as he was going to the cross. And so, as we know, uh, Jesus said Satan has demanded that he sifts you like wheat. But I pray that your faith might be strong, and that afterwards, on the other side, you might encourage your brother. So, Jesus gave us a hint that Peter was going to go through this hard time. Uh, but it's only in John 21 where we see him on the other side saying, I'm going back to fishing, man. That's what I know. I'm not just going on a fishing trip. I'm going back to fishing. And some of the disciples said, so are we. But there's Jesus on the side of the sea beckoning him. And so when Peter recognizes him, he jumps out of the boat again. Uh, not the first time he's jumped out of a boat, but this time he has to swim to the shore and, and has an encounter with Jesus where Jesus restores him gracefully, mercifully, and purposefully. And I just love the fact that Peter walked away from that moment uh, more zealous and more focused than ever before. And after Pentecost, of course, he was the guy that stood up and God used him in so many different ways. All that to say, no matter how disillusioned a person has been in their faith in Jesus Christ, he does not shut us down. He didn't shut Thomas down for doubting. He gave him evidence to believe. And in the same way, he gave Peter evidence to believe even when he had given up. Now, that just says something about God right there. And what a comeback story. Just going to the subtitle of your book, God's Not Done With You, Encouragement from the Bible's Greatest Comeback Stories. Peter, certainly one of those. And, well, Pastor Metter, thank you so much for joining us today on His People. Um, I guess Pastor John Metter uh, of Cross City Church in Euless, Texas. What would be your last words of encouragement? I mean, the, is there something you'd like to leave us with, some, some nugget as we uh, wrap up? Well, I do hope that people, when they walk away from looking at all these characters and seeing how God worked in their life, that the common denominator was God was there, His grace was available to them, and He redeemed their lives. In the same way He redeems our life through Jesus Christ on the cross, um, He redeemed their lives, and He will redeem yours. And I think that's so important, that no matter what condition your life is in, God's not done with you as long as you're here, as long as you're breathing, as long as you have eyesight and can hear and talk. Uh, God's got a plan for you. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Pastor John Metter, author of God's Not Done With You, encouragement from the Bible's greatest comeback stories. He pastors Cross City Church in Euless, Texas. 
Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Adam Mabry on what to do when it feels like God is gone. The first step is to figure out, well, what is the reason why? Is it that you feel that God is far away? Is it that you feel he is silent? Is it that you feel he's actually just not good at all? And, and you're actually doubting his moral character? Because each one of those has a sort of different path toward wholeness. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening. Thank you.